0: On today's episode, we have psychedelic therapist Kayla Fenton. Join us for a conversation about the healing journey of reclaiming our spirituality and intuition. Together, we talk about how submitting to a male god complicated our dating lives, differentiating between our inner healing wisdom and trauma scripts, and tapping into the feminine divine Oh my goodness. For anyone who has been listening to this podcast, you are going to immediately hear how this is a huge intersection of so many things that we've talked about spiritual trauma, connecting to pleasure, psychedelics, altered states of consciousness, listening to your intuition. I mean, there are so many pieces that came together for this amazing conversation that I had with Kayla. And we reflected on how. Some of these fundamentalist religions and conservative religions cause us to become disconnected from our own inner healing wisdom. And that's something I've struggled with a lot to believe in, right? Do we even have that capacity? But I do think in the same way that we have scars on our bodies that heal, right? When we have a cut, maybe our psyche can do the same thing. And maybe that psyche, just like our body and our skin knows how to form that scar to keep us safe, maybe our psyche knows how to do the same thing. But for years, maybe you were taught, like me, that we give up that credit of healing, of intuition, of knowing to a god structure that for some relationships did cause spiritual harm and abuse. And I think there needs to be more space to talk about that and the pain of how these sorts of relationships to spirituality have lasting effects with our thought structures and relational patterns that we still deconstruct through years of unfolding the ways that these narratives really shaped our world. Y'all know I am so, so passionate about this. So being able to record with someone else who is doing this work and just as passionate about the amount of healing that can happen in this space, it was a very magical conversation that I hope all of you enjoy and certainly learn something new. All right, dear listeners, I'm happy you're here. Happy Wednesday. I hope you enjoy this episode and tune in. Families have a lot going on. So you are just introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about how modern anarchy resonates with you. If you could uh, introduce yourself to the listeners one more time.
1: Yes. My name is Kayla Felton and I use share pronouns. I um, have a couple of different realms where I resonate with the, just the concept of anarchy, the celebration of anarchy, of being different, of clearing the, the possibilities the realm of possibility. Um, yeah. So I currently in my in my realms of work and advocacy, I have a a nonprofit organization. It's an advocacy organization for religious trauma and spiritual abuse survivors. As always, there's a story that got me there. I was born and raised within a fundamentalist evangelical culture called the Plymouth Brethren. And so me, I've always kind of existed as a mirror, kind of letting other people know that better and different is possible. I've never been someone who could just sit with like the singular homogenous model given to me and be content and not believe that a different path was also not just possible, but definitely like what I was destined for. And then in another realm of my current advocacy work is psychedelic advocacy and medicine protection. Um, I'm a psychedelic therapist out of St. Paul, Minnesota, and it's just been really beautiful over the last probably four or five years to watch these two realms of my career, kind of my professional realms, overlap so seamlessly, Mm -hmm. Um, being able to hold space for people who are seeking to certainly heal and in many cases heal kind of a very wounded part of their their spirit so a lot of people seeking to reclaim a sense of spirituality outside of uh organized framework kind of a prescriptive this is the one fundamentalist best way to be in relationship with god self others the world um this is the one way to see things so really out of a fundamentalist, aka supremacist worldview, watching out of that, but still find a way to be in communion with spirit. And so in that sense, reclaiming spirituality, often using psychedelics as a way of just having a different framework of what is possible, existing on a different vibration entirely during the ketamine treatments, which that's the medicine that I'm currently holding space for in the clinical realm, yeah. as as are you. I was uh, so jazzed to hear that. You and I are doing some similar work. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's so powerful. It's so powerful,
0: and thank you for sharing a bit about your personal experience. I'd be curious if your experience was anything like mine where after going through that sort of trauma with religion, I was so adverse to anything spiritual, anything that got close to that at all. I'm curious what your experience was like going through that and then
1: stepping out of that. Yeah. I think I refer to this part of what is very common on the deconversion kind of path for many people. I call it a pendulum swing, where sometimes we we leave a a culture, an identity, religious, you know, denomination, sect, and we can say, ah, I'm safe now. Like, I'm, this place, this leader, this congregation, this church, this belief system was the singular problem. And we can leave and say, like, I'm safe now. Um, And sometimes have, like, this pendulum swing. Like, that was all that was bad. That was all that was oppressive, marginalizing, uh, dangerous controlling and we can have this pendulum swing of like, well, now I'm safe. And also now I have like the new truth. Mm-hmm. We can kind of be looking for like the new absolute truth, the new fundamentalism. Right. And so I do think that it is very common that people will exit one fundamentalist culture or belief system and pendulum swing right into the next. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I bring up this question of like, have folks ever met a fundamentalist, you know, atheist or a fundamentalist yogi or a fundamentalist vegan, and kind of expanding the realms of like, fundamentalism isn't just about religion; it's about believing that you possess fundamental truth. And then the supremacy part comes in because we do gotta talk about that, where you believe that your absolute truth should reign supreme over all, mm-hmm. even those who don't connect or identify with that belief structure that identity that lived experience and so i part of my deconstruction journey then so that's followed my deconversion i did deconvert in my Mm mid-20s and now ever since then and probably forever and always in my lifetime i will be deconstructing those fundamentalist Mm -hmm. beliefs thought patterns and relational cycles because that's how i was called you know socialized indoctrinated really and so, yes, there was a season. <laughs> that was a long way of answering your question, <laughs> uh, Nicole. But yes, there was a season where I had left that and I was like, that shit sucks. I'm not, I'm not going to be part of any of that. And then through deconstruction, kind of recognizing, okay, maybe it wasn't spirituality that was problematic. Maybe it wasn't the parts of me that are spiritual that can get activated, like spiritually activated. Hmm. Maybe those things are actually holy and organic to me and he God by Jesus was actually the problem of giving glory to him I'm putting that in quotes, you know, maybe that was the part of all of this that was problematic, but there was parts of this that were holy and organic to Kayla Felton. That was my intuition, my inner healing wisdom, my preferences and dreams and hopes, you know, Mm -hmm. and that stuff is actually kind of magical. And Mm -hmm. there's been parts of me that have been here all along, but there's been parts of me that have been co-opted to be said, this is actually not you, Kayla. This is God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, or all these things about you don't actually matter at all because the only thing about you that matters is your intersection of Christianity your intersection of connection to this community this belief system this intersection of your identity it's the most important and arguably the only thing that matters about you does that yeah. does that resonate is that him uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's it
0: and yeah yeah that whole part where it's like please let go of all of me so that I can be a servant to God. Like that whole negation yeah. of the self, whole negation of any of my sense of desires because at least for me, you know, being taught that like any sense of felt connection in my body was bad because the body is fleshy and I can't trust the body to tell me the truth. I need to quiet that and try to submit to the will of God, right? Like all of that negating, I appreciated you said um, that this is a process of continual deconstruction, right? Because this is how we were raised and grew up in that. And so it takes time to unfold that. And that's been so much of my own journey of seeing the ways that it continues continues to creep up and come through. And, um, yeah, there's, I could, I could write a whole book on that, you know what I mean? Like, yes. just like submitting to the will of men. Now that was a whole thing too, being taught Ooh. that men were somehow closer and the amount of times that I've idealized men as somehow more closer to truth than my own. I mean, oof, you know,
1: that comes mm-hmm. through in dating life real fast, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. Well, and that's exactly what I mean by deconstructing the thinking cycles and the relational patterns. So because I was socialized and this is how to relate to people who are men to automatically assume an intersection of authority over me. Yeah, that's taken me a lot of very intentional deconstruction, even post deconversion. Yeah, I've always known there's a part of me that was uncomfortable around men in general, but especially, you know, the patriarchal misogynistic kind of just the power differential. I actually can think of times in childhood that, that I wasn't, I was not thrilled by that. I was consciously a- annoyed, yeah. inconvenienced by yeah. that power dynamic. And yet, even after I deconverted. Here I am actually more like 10 years post-deconversion and still recognizing ways and where it still shows up for me. For example, I still know that I get really activated, really activated. And there's a lot of, an abundance of narratives, familiar old Mm -hmm. narratives that come back and visit me whenever I'm around men, especially men who I do care about, who I am in a relationship with, you know, um, and they express that they are frustrated and upset these are all wholly inorganic organic emotions for all humans to tap into and yet when i hear men verbalize verbalize you know just being really frustrated expressing anger i often internalize that as i'm to fix this mm. men shouldn't have to feel this way i should be stepping in protecting the men in my life from having inconvenient uncomfortable emotions and or i assume i have I had to clarify with many men in my life, you know, partners, my brother, you know, are you mad at me? Mm-hmm. Because there's always this assumption personally that I'm like, oh, I think you're upset with me. I think you're disappointed with me. I think that you feel like I should be doing more so that you don't have to experience this, this emotion, mm-hmm. this inconvenience. And really hard for me still in my 30s as someone who's been able to curate a life where truly the only men in my life are the ones I have handpicked. You know, in terms of uh, in my workspace and my yeah, like I really have curated something incredible for me in terms of, I do have an abundance of masculine energy and insight surrounding me, but I have handpicked it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> hell
0: yes. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I really hear you on that, that experience of um, internalizing the reaction of the other, especially a man, if they're upset as something's wrong with me, I need to be smaller, right? Like we can talk about the collective trauma that is the socialization of womanhood to be small and quiet. And then, yeah, you add something like religion on top of that, that, you know, servant and subjective to the wisdom of the man who's the leader of the family, you know, <laughs> I think we could add all of that onto there for how this starts to um, connect and create our relational patterns. And I think that's, you know, part of what I'm so interested in with sex and relationships. It's like all of these outside containers are directly affecting our most intimate and personal relationships. If you don't think that the society, the religion is infecting that, like, we're missing mm-hmm. out on a whole piece of the equation of how we're interconnecting with one another with these larger systems that are at play. And um, yeah. I also appreciated what you said about like feeling like something was off and always knowing that. I remember mm-hmm. being young in the church and feeling like it's a little, it's darker, but um. I just remember feeling at a young age that I would commit suicide at some point when I got into my like 30s. And I just, I just was like, this mm-hmm. is not going to work with me. I'm going to be out Sylvia Plath style. Like this just not, mm. does not feel like my path. And that seems so yeah. like just normal to the time. And I don't have ah. any of those feelings now. And it's something like I process a lot in therapy. And I think that like, In a same way of like maybe my inner healing wisdom, my inner sense of gut and instinct Mm -hmm. was like, this is not the path for me. And in a world where I was going to be stuck to be a servant to a man and have children and be unable to work, just like basic things, basic things, uh, Mm -hmm. that was not my path that was never <laughs> going to be my path. And my body knew that was not yes. going to be my path. And so like those yes. sorts of thoughts were kind of like how I understand that now, because I never have those feelings. Yes. Now I see life as this full and mm-hmm. abundant mm-hmm. space to explore and expand. But at the time I didn't see that out. And so it just felt so yeah.
1: restrictive and so stuck. Mm. Ugh. I relate to an element of that. I, I can't say that I recall envisioning that I was going to be dead, but I know that I did have trouble envisioning myself living within the brethren, within that culture, within like a marriage with children. Like I knew since I was eight years old, pregnancy is not my path. I've known that I have no interest in being pregnant. And as I've gotten older and gotten out of that culture, which at the time told me, well, this is probably God telling you that you're supposed to adopt children. Um, So I, at eight years old, thought because I knew there was an innate part of my intuitive knowing of who I am, that I'm not going to be, you know, having children biologically. I was already given a narrative for what that meant. God was guiding me towards God was telling me that I'm here to adopt, you know, still within this heteronormative mindset of you're going to fall in love with the man and you're going to still want to create a family with this man. But there was just parts of that since eight years old that I was like, I actually don't think that's what it's going to look like for me. Yeah. And so that's actually been a lot of my inner healing. Um, my inner child healing work has been around looking back to my childhood and giving myself some goddamn credit for how intuitive I've been this whole fucking time. And I can yes. look back to see like at eight years old, at 12 years old, at 14 years old, when things didn't feel right. At the time, I probably experienced a guilt or a shame cycle thinking, wow, I'm probably not being submissive to the will of God or submissive to the will of, of man. And now I can say, no, I was intuitive. It didn't fit because it wasn't aligned. It didn't fit because there were people being actively harmed. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't fit because there was a part of me that was always this queer and just didn't know it until my late 20s. Yes. You know, there's yes. <laughs> parts that just weren't aligned it didn't fit. And now I can see I've always been this intuitive. Mhm.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. I think as you're speaking here that I'm feeling a lot of
0: this sense of yeah, how these restrictive religious structures deeply disconnect us from our intuition. Like it's just hitting me so hard right now that mm. injured instinct that happens when exactly what you said, you felt that experience of it being off and then someone comes in with a narrative to say you're wrong. You're wrong fit back into our model of existence. And that over time, if you keep getting that response, then you have to shut off everything that you're feeling within yourself. I think what's been Mm -hmm. interesting too, is like, you know, working at sauna healing and like doing other sorts of things Mm -hmm. in terms of the psychedelic space. Um, a lot of discussion about this inner healing wisdom and a lot of I think my supervision in this sort of work has been like my pushback on it of like well, what is the inner healing yes. wisdom can I trust that like what is that and I think mm. a lot of that is my own religious mm. trauma creeping in yeah um, can I trust this thing who who is that where is that so I'm curious if you could speak to the inner <laughs> healing wisdom and this concept
1: and what it means to you yeah well, to me, when I think of inner healing wisdom, I'm thinking of just intuitive knowing and kind of transitioning from the external locus of control to an internal locus of control. So I can take a lot of directions. Let's see if my my ADHD tangential brain can make a decision of which way we're gonna go first. We're gonna just gonna go your a gut. Couple places with this one. Yeah. That's a good question, Nicole. Well, I will say that um, I I do run integration circles through the Reclamation Collective, as well as I do some integration circle work as a collaboration with the Ancestor Project and Mycology Psychology. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that I ask in these integration circles, particularly the ones through the Reclamation Collective that are for religious trauma survivors or for survivors of trauma in general, I talk about the differentiating How do you know if something is your inner healing wisdom or your intuition, or if this is a trigger, an activation, a a trauma cycle? Yes. Um, How do you know? So for example, if I'm someplace and I suddenly have this wave of anxiety that I need to get out of here, is that like my inner healing wisdom saying something bad is about to happen here? You need to get out of here. Is that some part of my unconscious or subconscious kind of actually taking note of something in my environment that is going awry? Because that is possible, or is this something uh, about my trauma history, my trauma narrative, that I don't feel safe? And as soon as I see, for example, maybe a man walk past me, we just talked about—I'm acknowledging I have some patriarchy trauma. A man walks past me—is that my trauma response? That like I'm—I can't feel safe in my body and my environment because of this reminder of my trauma narrative, or is this my inner healing wisdom protecting me, saying, "Get out of here. This is actually." something's about to go down mm-hmm. or something's already going down, you know? So talking about differentiating trauma response from inner healing wisdom, I think is especially difficult for those of us who already have pre-existing or long standing cycles of nervous system dysregulation. And I don't have like just a super, you know, direct, clear answer to that question. I think that is what trauma resolution work is, is yeah. differentiating, yeah. but ultimately Giving all the parts of me, the wounded parts, the terrified parts, the anxious parts, some credit that you're here for a reason. Instead of trying to say, I shouldn't feel this way, instead of going in that resistance of I shouldn't feel this way, trying to ignore or push down that sensation, instead inviting it as a wise and insightful teacher, what are you here to share? Mm -hmm. Is it because a wounded part of my younger self needs to be held and honored of yes, It is scary sometimes to be around strangers. Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. sometimes strangers do things that are really unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Is this a part of me that needs to be held and honored, And, or is this a part of my environment that I can do? I I can take that note and say, okay, I'm going to be looking around. I know that I have a way out of here. I have a car or I have a way to Uber out of here. Mm -hmm. For me, a lot of my trauma, um, a lot of my triggers come up when I feel sensations of being trapped, like Mm. I'm stuck somewhere, like I don't have access to my autonomy um, to get out of something. Right. Right. And So I know I've been in those scenarios where I'm like, I'm having a trauma response. I think I'm actually safe, but I do need to do that work so that the younger parts of me, the scared parts of me can bear witness to my whole adult self looking around mm-hmm. making a, an exit strategy plan not necessarily exiting yeah. not needing to stop and, and get out of here but just saying i know that i have a way out of this i am not trapped. i am not um, going to be forced to interact with any of the men in this space mm-hmm. if i don't want to yeah. And sometimes I just have to be able to speak those truths, those new narratives that do inform my reality now right. as an autonomous adult making decisions for myself. I need to speak that over myself, all of my younger wounded parts. Yes. Um, and I think that's what this differentiation work is is honoring. I'm not trying to avoid triggers, I'm not trying to avoid being activated. I accept that nervous system dysregulation is a part of my. Mm-hmm my presence and part of my story. And I also honor that that nervous system dysregulation proves, affirms that I've been through some shit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we can always have so much compassion for our bodies and the ways that we're trying to protect ourselves, right? Like that, you know, that response of having the male walk through the room and the activation that comes up in our bodies, that Response is trying to protect us because, yeah, maybe from the past there's been experiences where that hasn't been safe, and so our body knows that and is trying to keep us safe, right? Slash also maybe it is that instinct coming through, and like you said, that can be so tricky to navigate. I think that has been my theoretical exploration and supervision for the <laughs> last year of like, how do you help people to figure that out? Because I don't want to just be blanket willy-nilly coming up to people like, yeah, just listen to your body, listen to your gut. It's totally going to tell you the way to go, like super clear, just go for it, right? Because like, like you, like my own experience, I've had so much trauma responses that I've been able to see now as exactly that trauma that i think has been important to explore in therapy in community and other healing modalities and to be able to um i don't want to say let go but move through those emotions in my body in a different way that i don't feel like i'm carrying them as much so i think like now where i'm at i feel like i'm able to kind of notice when that comes up like you were Mm -hmm. saying in my body as Mm -hmm. a sort of fear response and i loved what you said about bringing in curiosity like asking ourselves like, what is this here to tell me? What is this here to say? And when we kind of sit with that, I think it might become slightly more clear about where it's coming from of a, a felt sense versus that fear. And it can be so important to like, like you said, challenge our own reality at times, right? Sometimes in the fear response, our perspective starts to narrow and we're So like, this is going to happen. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall apart. Like, you know, versus like, hey, what are all the other contexts where maybe this has been different? What are my outs, my safeties now that I know that I have? And being able to like sit back in our own perspective and balance it can cause us to have a different reaction in our body when we take that time to slow down. But yeah, like you said, there's no clear, easy answer. I wish there was to be like, that's trauma and that's gut intuition. But I think that's some of the beautiful work of of sitting with that and learning to feel that difference.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well should we talk about how and when um drugs came into the picture yeah (laughs) let's go for it you tell me yeah (laughs) because i i think that that's been such an interesting piece of of what for me personally has been a, a huge intersection of my healing trajectory but then now also getting to hold space for other survivors who are using psychedelics and plant medicine and ceremony to reconnect with community, reconnect with self, reconnect with spirit. And when I use the word spirit, I am not talking about any particular conceptualization of God. I am talking about just to your own holy and organic spirit Mm -hmm. um, that belongs to you. Um, But I probably was 26, 27 when I had my first communion with psilocybin mushrooms. And that experience was so awakening for me in that this was every sensation of spirituality. Some of that sensation was familiar because there was a part of me that was always deeply spiritual and very responsive to my own emotional realm. And also like how deeply connected I've always felt to other people, even people that I've never met across the globe, learning about geography learning about other cultures there's always been a part of me that's felt deeply connected to people uh, not just across the globe but across time. Some of those sensations were familiar, but some were all entirely new sensations mm. um, as you know you know with sitting with psychedelics, there are some parts of those experiences that are just not explicable in human languages there's just not it's an interdimensional experience a sensation and so Having that experience in an entirely non-religious context, in an experience where I truly get to experience this for myself and interpret what does it mean for myself. No one else is trying to tell me in a prescriptive way how to commune with this medicine or how to learn from this medicine at least I had that experience. I am aware that there are many places in psychedelic and plant medicine realms where people are being given prescriptive protocols for the supreme, fundamentally best way to sit with medicine, to integrate with medicine. But I was spared that and I'm very grateful that because that was an experience for me of, wow, I am so deeply spiritual. And I feel like that was the moment that I gave myself permission to be deeply spiritual Mm. And to honor that that was not just going to take me back around full circle to female God, white Jesus, organized religion. I just knew that that actually has nothing to do with what I'm experiencing. So that was my beginning, my personal journey with, with medicine. A few years later, as I had started to launch the Reclamation Collective, um, I started facilitating some support groups and actually had a number of people bring up specifically how important and and, and quintessential their psychedelic um, experiences were to their reclamation work, their reclamation yeah. journey of reclaiming intersections of identity, yep. how to um, connect with pleasure and how to pursue um, autonomy. These are all pieces of reclamation that people were c- communicating to me. This was really helpful. Yeah. And as a a freshly clinically licensed therapist who was kind of launching this new organization I really was curious what were going to be my uh, boundaries my protections and being able to honor and validate these true experiences that people were reporting uh, to me and wanting to explore how do I hold sacred space to honor that while also acknowledging that I myself have also been socialized within the war on drugs. And Mm -hmm. I also don't really know what it, I wasn't yet super familiar with harm reduction and what that makes possible for safer communions with medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, at that point had facilitated a panel where I was interviewing a panel of kind of professionals, people who did work. a more professional or had studied in a more academic context psychedelic interventions for therapy i had a workshop um around psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and i was interviewing this panel of folks and um it was the largest you know audience that we'd had at any recognition collective event at that point this is still just a few months before covid changed our lives (laughs) but um so I knew that the response from community was huge. I was like, people uh, want to talk about this. Yes. People deserve safe spaces to talk about this. Absolutely. I know many of us are coming from fundamentalist cultures where purity culture has unfortunately impeded us from having access to sex education, a comprehensive you know, conceptualization of consent. Oof, and so yes. I was like, okay, clearly we have a whole nother realm of the same shit where if people don't have access to a, a concept of, harm reduction and personal safety and sovereignty over self when entering these realms with psychedelic medicines, there's a lot of danger, Mm -hmm. potential for danger. Yes. So that kind of lit up something in me of like, okay, I really would like for the Reclamation Collective to offer as part of Reclamation supports some type of drug education, harm reduction approaches to communion with medicine. Just knowing how I anticipate as we have more and more access to plant medicines and psychedelic interventions, I think that this is going to be especially a potent opportunity for people who have experienced spiritual abuse, indoctrination, religious trauma, um, and honoring that that can happen both within and entirely outside. Side of religious context. So I'm talking to more than just people coming out of religious cultures. Um, I'm talking to anybody who's ever been indoctrinated into any belief or culture. Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that was a vision there. And within a few weeks of that workshop, I received a text from one of the folks who was on the panel saying, Hey, uh, we do hope to launch a psychedelic clinic here in the Twin Cities. Would you have interest in coming on board and helping us launch that? And at that point in my life, I had just started my seventh year as a middle school social worker. And I started that school year knowing it would be my last, knowing I was already burnt completely. And so I was able at the end of that school year to be able to start building a caseload in this mental health clinic as we launched a psychedelic therapy Mm -hmm. clinic. So that is still where I'm connected to in St. Paul, Minnesota. That's Entero Psychedelic Therapy. That is where we offer ketamine treatments. I also have been able to help launch some ketamine um, group Mm -hmm. treatments, which is also a beautiful opportunity when people have been harmed in a community context how wonderful and potential for a corrective experience, a therapeutic exposure to what is possible when we heal, also in community, while having access to our autonomy, yeah while having access to our agency, mm-hmm. while actually having open conversations about the power dynamics that can exist. you know, I really enjoyed being able to be a part of all of that. Yes. all of that
0: <laughs> I can tell I can feel it and how you're showing up, and, man, I just want to say selfishly, it's giving me so much excitement because I'm seeing how like oh, it's not like, oh, the sex part and psychedelics can come together, and then hearing you talk about the spiritual trauma piece of it, I never even like imagined that being a part of my career too, but so many people reach out on the podcast saying, like, you know. I heard these conversations on the podcast about spiritual trauma and I resonated so deeply with that pain and like, thank you for bringing this light into the world. And so like, I think there are so many people that have suffered under those systems of oppression. And so like bringing this out, I do think that is continue, it's going to continue to grow and get stronger for people who are looking for this sort of support. And it's, it's amazing to hear the work that you're doing and being a part of that, I think that the field of psychology is going to have a really hard time with it, and uh, because, yes, as a psychologist, there's a lot that we can share and teach and help people in terms of their growth and their healing and processing emotions, and also that inner healing wisdom of being able to step back and know that I don't know what's best for my client, right? I do not know what their images that they're receiving on the medicine Mm -hmm. mean. I do not have that power. And I think the field of psychology has taught us, because it's a patriarchal system that was built under that, right, form of oppression and colonial Mm -hmm. structures of power over dynamics. There is so much that comes in to be like, I'm the psychologist. I'm going to interpret this for you. I'm going to tell you the way to go. I'm going to do this. And I think that as we start to step Mm -hmm. into the space of psychedelic work, having people connect to their inner healing wisdom. I think a lot of psychology is going to have to go through its own change of realizing maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe my job is to help the person connect to their own inner truth
1: within Mm -hmm. reason,
0: right? Big asterisks, right? Because of what we said earlier too about the trauma that can Mm -hmm. come up to uh, make it difficult to hear that wisdom. But it's supporting...
1: Yeah. It's supporting people and differentiating that for themselves. Yes. Yes. Because yes. especially when I work with folks who come to an intake, I'm always very clear as a therapist that, um, especially for folks coming from cultures where there only ever always was an external locus of control, you needed permission and direction for everything that you did said bot war yeah so i understand that i have folks coming into treatment with me really wanting to just replicate that replace that with (sighs) okay kayla i trust you you kind of understand how to heal religious trauma and i just say i know how to heal my damn self i'm not anyone's healer i'm here to help hold a container so that you can heal yourself but that's going to be really challenging and kind of terrifying if you've only ever always had people telling you what to do. So I'm going to hold space so that you can be exploring what feels right. And some of the decisions that you make, you'll find out had some unexpected surprises, consequences. I want to be careful with that word though, because I know people from our cultures of origin, Nicole, hear consequences and think punishment. Oh, yeah, And it's not this punishment that you made the wrong choice. It's a natural consequence reaction response to how how this Decision, how this plays out in your path. But it's terrifying to lean on your internal locus of control when you've only ever been told that you are inherently evil. Mm. You cannot trust yourself. Mm. You are, you know, original sin doctrine is such a quintessential, you know, foundation of so many fundamentalist Christian cultures and beliefs. We are inherently bad. We cannot lean on our own understanding. We are we are stupid. (laughs) you know yes so I think that that's where a lot of my work is (sighs) around in doing psychedelic treatments especially with religious trauma or spiritual abuse survivors is really leaning on how do we transition this external locus of control to the internal and how do we learn to build trust within yourself
0: Mm -hmm. you know
1: intrapersonal trust yeah not just interpersonal which we understand for people with trauma it's very hard to trust other people Mm -hmm. but we had to start with the intrapersonal trust building uh how do you trust yourself and lean on your own understanding when that was literally a sin yes perhaps for decades of your life like Uh, it was for me for two decades of my life (laughs) right Ugh.
0: Ugh. If I could, I just want to hold so much space for that. Like that is huge. The amount of disconnection that we go through in that. Were you
1: going to say and something? The amount of self-hatred. Yeah. The amount of self-hatred Oof. and self-loathing. Yeah. I just want to say, and I've said this multiple
0: times, that if we took off the framework of that organized religion as a religion that has a, a, a respecting religious structures – and the cultural Mm. aspects of that but if i were to put what you're saying to me into a relationship and say okay Mm. so i'm i'm dating this person who is telling me that i am wrong i am sinful i cannot be trusted Mm. at all and what i need to do is actually listen to this person because they know the truth the way and the light and I need to be quiet and submit to this person. If you came into my office saying that, I would call that abuse. I would say this is a toxic relationship that is unhealthy, that is cutting you off from your own intuition, like, and putting you into the space of continued need, which is to say that you're wrong, you're bad, you need me to have light. And it's like, whoa, if that was put into any other context, we would be having huge red flags about what sort of messages that says about the self And yet understanding the importance of respect for religion, but like, also like, when do we call out the fact that that's traumatic and needs to be called out for the kind of relationship that it is creating with the self, which is that you are sinful, wrong and fleshy and the flesh cannot be trusted. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. oh, Mm
1: -hmm. exactly. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also want to share a little bit about my approach to psychedelic intervention in the clinical space is in my prep work with clients, we're doing all this inventory of what are the narratives that have informed your reality? Kind of the main perspective that informs my my work in the psychedelic realm is that we all live in our own reality as informed by the narratives we've been given, but particularly those that we've internalized and accepted as truth. Um, We can both have you know ex- a same experience, but walk away having different feelings, yeah. different interpretations, different conceptualizations yeah. of what the meaning is of that yes. experience. Absolutely, of this conversation. You know. Yep. Yep. And yep. so, in the prep work that I'm doing with my clients, preparing for a ketamine transcendence, is let's take inventory of all the narratives that inform your reality. Mm. For some people that might be, I'm inherently evil. I cannot trust myself. I cannot trust men. I will never be able to lean on anyone, depend on anyone more than I can depend on myself. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm so real. That's one of my narratives that has informed my reality is I can't depend on other people. I have to depend on myself for everything that I'll ever need. And so when we take inventory of that, we start differentiating who does that narrative belong to? Is that actually yours? is that your childhood pastor's? Is that your grandmother's narrative? Whose narrative is that? And is that actually something that you want to take into the rest of your life and forming your reality? Mm-hmm. Or is that narrative actually what we've now pathologized as depression, yeah. as anxiety? Is it actually a clinical cycle or is it a narrative that is telling you yes. something bad is going to happen? I can't trust myself to protect myself. Right. And so then once we're, cre- we're kind of identifying, we're going to cleanse out, we're going to remove, shed some of these narratives. We're creating space for what is possible. Mm-hmm. Now let's identify what are the narratives that you're going to design yes. and invite in to inform Oof. your new reality as you turn this new leaf, have this big, hopefully disruptive experience. That's the point of, in my opinion, of, a, of right. really any psychedelic transcendence that's yeah. intended to be therapeutic. Let's disrupt this default mode network. Mm-hmm. Let's completely shatter what we thought was the extent of what was possible yeah. and recognize so much more is possible. Yeah. You can go to a different dimension. You can sit on the moon and play with the baby elephant. You can literally do that. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that was one example of, of a client who their experience in academy yeah. transcendence. Like we can completely blast off yeah. our conception of what is possible. And that just kind of disruption can be so conducive to leaving some of those narratives behind and just having a fresh start, mm-hmm. a fresh start. Yes. And I love how you
0: pointed out that those narratives are relational, right? Like we are not an island. We show up in this world and we are constantly shaped by the different narratives in, you know, whatever family system we have. Whatever cultural system and the larger society, it's always painting narratives of who we are, what we can be, and that sinks into us and it affects how we see ourselves. And so, I so much of the work that I've done with people who even come in and say, like, I just feel like I'm wrong, something's bad with me. I'm always asking, like, where did that voice come from? Who told you that? Because I know that is not you. That is someone, whether it's religion, whether it was an abusive family member, whether it's society that says that you're not accepted as a queer person, right? Like it's not always a direct Mm -hmm. human. It can sometimes be the societal collective Mm -hmm. thinking. And so it's like, all that internal sense were like, why am I so hating on myself? You know, why am I so negative? It's like, well, because there was some relationship, some narrative, someone else who told you that it wasn't you. And just getting the, taking the time to really parse that out and sit with where those come from and then letting that go Oh, That sounds so incredibly powerful and like such a way of disrupting the narrative and being able to move (laughs) forward as you let go of those narratives and, And that's a long journey, exactly like we've been saying throughout this process, right? It's not like we just wake up one day and we're like, oh, cool, that was gone. Like, cool, I did, you know, ketamine and like that religious trauma is out the window. You know, it's it's a long process of, you know, slowly undoing that work over time. And I think what has been so beautiful is that when you have these experiences, you're able to take that moment and stay connected to that, right? Like that's the beauty of integration. And once you've had that experience Mm -hmm. where you have been so connected, you know, I think some of the work we've talked about, even though MDMA isn't legal yet, but through the underground support, you know, and integration work of people talking about the first time they've done MDMA and feeling such calm in their body, people with chronic anxiety Mm -hmm. coming out and saying, I didn't know that I could feel that way in my body. I didn't know I could feel that relaxed. Mm. And it's like, you don't have yeah. to have that experience on the medicine every day to keep that. Once you've had that experience, you're able mm-hmm. to tap back into it and remember when you're feeling stressed, like, okay, what did mm-hmm. that feel like in my body? Where was I at in that moment? And being able to pull that out and integrate and move forward as part of the beauty of mm-hmm. this work is keeping those
1: moments with us. Ugh, I could mm-hmm. probably get on a soapbox and yeah. rant about those forever. <laughs> I I would join you. We'll have to make a a soapbox big enough for both (laughs) feet. I I, I love that concept. It's the remembering. It's the remembering. And that's what I do see as a very spiritual experience for many people. Mm -hmm. It's the remembering that you like the medicine is only here to highlight what already exists within. Right. Yes. So remembering what already is part of you, joy is part of you, mm-hmm. gratitude is part of you, mm-hmm. peace is part of you. Mm-hmm. But for many people who have experienced years, decades, perhaps a lifetime of what we what we identify as depression, anxiety, PTSD, nervous system dysregulation. Yeah. then to have a remembering that i am peace i am love i am secure <laughs> uh-huh. you know to have these sensations of gratitude of security of safety yeah i'm thinking especially for trauma survivors sometimes we don't remember what it's like to feel safe in our own body yes yes so then we experience life and we are in relationship with the world around us thinking that all these places are dangerous yeah. when it's like, actually that's already a preconceived mm. narrative because you're existing in a body yeah. where lots of bad things have happened to you. Mm. And it doesn't matter if you're in a room by yourself or out in the middle of, you know, Times Square, you don't feel safe. Yes. So how do we restore a sense of safety in your own body so that that body can go places and you can still come back to a sense of safety? Yes. Yes. Yes,
0: yes. I want to share something very personal for me mm. as a sexual assault survivor. And, you know, we can throw all of the purity culture trauma on that equation for myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, you know, I think it was so profound. I, I live in a studio apartment, I have my own space that is a privilege, and I love that so much. And it was so profound to be able to be on the medicine, to be in my own apartment to just lay down naked and ask myself, why do I still not feel safe in my body? Mm-hmm. I am laying here. I have nothing to do. Nothing. No one's going to bother me. I am in a safe space. Mm-hmm. Why do I still feel unsafe? And just like letting mm-hmm. that and like – relaxing into my body in a safe space and also going beyond that to even feel like breath orgasms through that experience without even touching myself.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm
0: -hmm. Wow. What? Mm -hmm. Didn't know that was possible. (laughs) Right. And like, that has been such a thing for me of taking that out, you know, of feeling that level of pleasure in my body without even having to do any manipulation, just breath work and to feel safe in myself. My God, you know, and I don't Mm -hmm. think there's enough space in the field of psychology to talk about the power of that experience. And so I just appreciate you for even creating that container with me to like Mm -hmm. talk about this because, I think there's a lot of healing to be done, a lot of harm, right? That can happen with these substances and, and potentially trying to navigate that on your own. I don't want to just say to everyone, like, go do that by yourself, right? But for me, for me personally, it has been a healing experience mm-hmm. for me.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Nicole. Yeah. I think that is beautiful. That was just a great depiction of you tapping into your inner healing wisdom being held by your own divine divinity that's what i think of when i think of like tapping into my feminine divine yeah Mm.
0: and we all deserve that we all deserve to have that connection and to feel good in our bodies to feel good to Mm -hmm. feel pleasure to feel safe in our bodies Mm -hmm. oh
1: yeah you got me tearing up over here (laughs) yeah what are you
0: saying I'm so curious
1: oh I think it just feels really nice to be obviously in connection with you Nicole and just the the deep resonation that we've had throughout Mm. this conversation yeah
0: (laughs) yeah that we understand Mm -hmm. like that journey of having to reconnect after years of like just being so
1: disconnected it
0: was really hard you know
1: yeah yeah and also like what a gift it is to me it's actually part of my reclamation journey now is not just holding that sacred space for myself Mm -hmm. but also getting to hold that and even curate that Mm -hmm. for other people yeah and getting to bear witness to people getting to reclaim their connection to spirit Mm -hmm. their connection to divinity Mm -hmm. yeah uh that shit is potent yes (gasps) it is potent it's powerful and it's such a gift It's such a gift to get to be in in this position. And that actually does bring me, I'm going to change the vibe here, but it's something I really, I actually think we've set this up very well to talk about Yeah. as you and I are holding the the sacredness, the intimacy, the vulnerability of of where people are at. I also think we must continue to talk about the dangers, the risks, of when this type of sacred space is held in an unprepared or in other cases, unsafe containers. Yes. Yes. Ultimately, unprepared is an unsafe container, but yes. there's some that are unconsciously unsafe and there are some that are consciously, maliciously unsafe. Right. There is the potential to exploit what we just are talking about and sitting in ourselves. The The potential for our feminine divine, our divinity, our healing to be exploited for someone else's power, for someone else's money, Mm -hmm. finances. We're going to have to talk about capitalism and psychedelics forever and always.
0: Oh my God, yes.
1: But I also want to kind of also say another piece of my career path was a few years back after I had started to launch the Recognition Collective, I had already known that I was hoping to do some work around psychedelics in my therapeutic path but had not yet started that journey, mm-hmm. I was asked by a, a dear friend of mine who had connected some thoughts and recognizing that we have and still have a primary abuser among us in Minnesota mm-hmm. in our plant medicine and yoga communities. Oof. My friend had recognized that she had more than four friends of hers. Um, wow. So her knowing that if I have this many friends that I'm in connection and community with, surely there are others who have been harmed by this same man. And so she had asked if I would be open to holding some underground support space for spiritual abuse survivors. And um, so that these individuals could be invited. And we, of course, invited it up to anyone who's a spiritual abuse survivor, which, of course, includes, you know, survivors of clergy abuse, survivors of um, financial exploitation in both religious and non-religious cultures, people who have lived and existed in other forms of cults of non-religious mm-hmm. cults and so that experience for me in my career was super quintessential and expanding my understanding of spiritual abuse outside of and in addition to religious contexts. right and also that brings me kind of full circle to now whenever I have the opportunity to speak about psychedelic advocacy medicine protection and trauma resolution work I think we have to also continue to advocate that People need to be able to take inventory of: Am I actually safe yeah. in this therapeutic container? Yeah. Am I actually safe in this communal or ceremonial container? Mm-hmm. Um, do I have access to my autonomy and agency at all times? Yeah. Am I being in any ways pressured to commune with medicine in a way that I I don't feel comfortable? Mm-hmm. Um, am I being told that there's only one supreme way mm-hmm. to commune with this medicine to integrate these insights? Am I being prescribed or directed um, about or having my visions my experiences interpreted for me right or am I able to truly have this be an experience where I'm exploring me for me about me on my terms I get to set boundaries with this person they do not have an authority over my transcendence my relationship to medicine this is mine Right. (laughs) Yes, Mm -hmm.
0: yes, and that is so needed because if we only talk about the joys and, and the benefits of the work and not talk about the real risks, we're not having informed consent about the reality of this sort of medicine and healing and we need to be having open dialogues yeah about the risks about the safety that is needed to be able to undergo these experiences and so i really appreciate you bringing that into the space because it's a part of the conversation that needs to be had yeah really
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to hold space, too, as we come towards the end of our time, in case there is anything lingering for you still on your heart that you want to share. Otherwise, I always have a closing question, too, to kind of wrap things up.
1: Yeah. I just want to share a little bit about the Reclamation Collective and the resources, the offerings that we hold there. We, as I mentioned, it's a religious trauma and spiritual abuse advocacy organization. We hold space for virtual Online support groups so that folks from all over the country and ultimately the globe have access to holding a sacred space for healing. We offer support groups for folks navigating deconstruction. We offer support groups specifically for spiritual abuse survivors. We also offer a handful of intersection specific, um, intersectional identity specific uh, support groups. So we have support groups specifically for queer folks, specifically for BIPOC. Um, specifically for women um, and just honoring that people are obviously targeted differently and more specifically in certainly in religious realms and also in like the spiritually abusive dynamics yeah. because ultimately spiritual abuse is the use of power within any power dynamic mm-hmm. um, to manipulate exploit control And so we know that anyone with an intersection of identity that is particularly marginalized is going to be more uh, vulnerable, susceptible to finding ourselves in a spiritually abusive dynamic. Absolutely. And so. That has been lovely. We are able to offer all of our online support groups at a pay-as-you-can model exchange of um, $200 to $400 for the entire season. That comes down to $10 to $20 an hour for access to a licensed mental health professional facilitating these uh, conversations. Mm -hmm. They're not courses. They're not workshops. They are support groups. So truly, we are trying to curate corrective experiences therapeutic exposures to what is possible when we can heal in connection to community without obligations to said community without the need to you know have any kind of obedience you know Mm -hmm. or any type of like it's it's not rude to come in late there's no such thing as late or leaving early it's as long you get to choose your proximity to and boundaries with this community of people as is conducive to your healing trajectory we trust you with you yeah ultimately and then additionally we have monthly workshops some of those are specifically for therapists and sacred space holders we have some consultation groups for both psychedelic therapists as well as religious trauma clinicians we have a religious trauma clinician directory that is a free resource for all on our website so folks can find a therapist who is licensed in their state that is another part of the inspiration for why we are specifically an organization that is curated, you know, led by licensed mental health professionals, but we are curating non-clinical interventions because we honor that the clinical realm so often is not accessible to most and certainly not to all. Um, And so we are wanting to make sure that we are curating space that folks can access from any state, ultimately any country. And we try to keep our offerings at a pay as you can exchange to ensure that people have access to that. Mm. And then also retreats. We've just brought back retreats last summer actually. And so at least uh, a handful of times throughout the year, we hope to be offering those in person sacred spaces for healing and connecting to community. Mm. It's
0: inspiring mm-hmm. Kayla. It's, it's beautiful. You're doing some really, really powerful work. Uh. I heard this quote, and it's not me, um, the other day that I feel like resonates with a lot of our conversation. Uh, It was the scars are where the light shines through, right? Being able to know Mm -hmm. all the experiences that we had through our own experience and being able to bring light through that and help other people through that and support other people with tuning into their own inner healing wisdom. It's it's really beautiful to see and hear about your work. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I'll ask the one closing question that I ask everyone on the podcast. And that is, what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal?
1: Mm. (laughs) One thing I wish people knew was more normal. Mm -hmm. Mm. I feel like one thing I wish people knew was more common. I love, I love that switch. abuse. Yeah. One thing I wish people knew was more common is spiritual abuse. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I think it is more normal than people realize to have experienced and survived spiritual abuse. I do just want to say that when I talk about a comprehensive conceptualization of what spiritual abuse is, we have to identify it is the conscious or unconscious use of power to direct, control, manipulate, exploit. And so, so often I've held space with survivors who are years and decades away from being in proximity to that person who had perpetuated spiritual abuse, but they for many years or decades have not been conscious that that's what happened to them. Mm. And it becomes even more nuanced when we acknowledge that the people who have spiritually abused others, in some cases also not conscious that that's the cycle they were perpetuating. Yes. So when... We talk about abuse cycles, being unconscious, that becomes an especially hard barrier when it comes to accountability and holding people accountable for harm done. Well, I didn't know I was doing that. I was just doing this out of love. You know, I do believe better is possible and more people are coming to this understanding as survivors are able to come together in community and connection and realize me too. And oh, I'm not the only one. And no, I was never crazy. Still not. That spiritual abuse is very common and to have realized that I survived spiritual abuse is normal.
0: Yes. Yes. I will tell you Mm -hmm. that you are on the right podcast because this has been a (laughs) running conversation on this and the amount Mm -hmm. of listeners that have reached out specifically about this. Mm. You're in the right space. And I am so, (laughs) so thankful that we were able to have this conversation and to talk about the power of connecting to our intuition, our inner healing wisdom. And yeah, it was uh, such a beautiful meeting point to connect with you and get to have this space to talk about this. I feel very seen and very inspired to keep doing this work. So I'm just I'm really thankful that we had time to
1: chat today. Uh, me as well, Nicole. Thank you for having me, for interviewing me on this podcast, and I look forward to getting you to hear about, learn about other modern anarchists yeah. living and breathing in today's world. Hell yeah. Hell Light yeah. and fires. What did I say? Light and fires and stomping on toes. Let's go. Vamos, hermana. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's
0: so fun. Oh, I really appreciated this, this as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast and head on over to modernanarchypodcast.com to get resources and learn more about all the things we talked about on today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next
1: week.